My Journey podcast. This time we've got some more interesting guests, including a comedian and a Michelin star chef, as well as today's guest, the sumo guy. But before we get into all of that, I just wanted to take a couple of seconds to tell you a bit about what I do. My name is Matt Johnson and I present the My Journey podcast, but day to day I'm a freelance personal branding and social media marketer. That means I help individuals and businesses grow their brand through social media. Whether you don't have the time or the knowledge to manage your own profiles or you are looking to run a campaign for a specific purpose and you need someone to manage all aspects of it, get in touch via matt at themattjohnson.co.uk. So that's the self-promotion over. Now on to today's episode. Paul McGee, also known as the Sumo Guy, is an international speaker, performance coach and author. Throughout this interview, you'll hear us chat about Paul's career to date and further in we move on to some of the principles he speaks about across the globe. The thing I really liked about this interview was Paul's ability to always try and give me and you, the listener, something to take away from the stories he's telling. So with that said, let's get into the latest episode of the My Journey podcast with Paul McGee. Welcome to the My Journey podcast, Paul McGee, how are you? I am really good, it's sunny in Warrington and I'm off to sunny Sunderland later, so can my life get any better? I genuinely don't know, man. It is great, it is great weather today, <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, I had to start with one thing, former yep. guest Drew Purvey has asked me to say he thinks you're a legend. Oh, bless him, he's a good guy. <laughs> um, so you're an international speaker and performance coach, is that how you describe what you do? Yeah, I suppose um, the word author probably also comes in there. So, yeah, so, I mean, I speak globally, but I'd probably still say 80% of it is in the UK. But I've I've written 11 books as well. So I think we can just about get away with calling me an author. Slip that one in as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, So if we go quite a way back in your career, um, I read that um, you were very much into drama and writing and personal development was like interest for you when you were growing up. How did them two things come together? Because drama, writing and personal development probably seen as quite two separate things for someone young. Yeah, I mean, what is bizarre about my journey is, yeah, so I like drama and acting. Um, and I did actually think about becoming a journalist. They were the things. And I suppose personal development probably came in a little bit later. But so you think, right, drama, journalist. So what was your first job, Paul? A bank clerk in Manchester. Um, and I think one of the insights from that story itself is sometimes, you know, that was back in the early 80s, um, the, the pressure of parents to steer you down a particular path, which I took, and I was incredibly miserable. I mean, there's a, there's a phrase I came across, which were, don't be a lizard on an iceberg. And to say that banking was not the place for me or the right environment was an understatement. So after a year in the bank, I quit. Um, I I went to university and I did a degree which incorporated behavioural and social psychology. So the love of writing and the bit of the drama was sort of like underlying things. But it was probably a little bit later on where my interest in personal development really took off. And did you learn anything from that experience as being a bank clerk other than to do what you love? Um, I think one of the things I learned was that there were other people in the bank who weren't particularly happy, but they weren't unhappy enough to change. And I think in life, one of the worst places to be is when you're in a place of indifference, because indifference doesn't necessarily motivate you to take the action. 
Whereas I literally, I hated working in the bank. It was not a good experience for them. It was not a good experience for me. I was a poor performer. I'd wake up every morning when the alarm went off and the first words out of my mouth were a swear word. And that isn't good. I think there's a lot of people who tolerate what they do and they're existing. So my big lesson to some extent was I felt quite fortunate enough that I hated it as much as I did because that drove me to take action. So I suppose for some people it's just about sticking with the status quo really and not wanting to change. Yeah, and I understand to some extent, you know, that the comfort zone is called the comfort zone for a very good reason, because we get comfortable. Um, That's a real major insight for you, obviously. Um, But a question I sometimes think is worth pondering for any of us is, you know, where do life's opportunities really lie inside or outside your comfort zone? And I think with me with the bank, I didn't need a lot of pushing to move out of my comfortable zone because actually it wasn't comfortable. I hated it. But for those who are listening right now who are going, I don't enjoy the job, but I don't hate it, but I'm comfortable. You know, you get one shot at this life and maybe some of your opportunities are going to be outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, the status quo, it, it, it can be okay, but it can also be an incredibly dangerous place to be. Yeah. So, you know, when you went to do your degree in behavioural and social psychology, was that seen as quite a maverick move then at the time if you'd been pushed into being a bank clerk? Absolutely, it was. Um, I remember someone actually saying to me, because obviously I was getting a salary, and on my last day, a senior manager within the bank who I got on well with, he actually said to me, he said, well, I've, I've come across people who've left to go for another job, but you're the first person to leave to go to university. You know, you're leaving something. I mean, banking in the 80s was very stable and very secure. That certainly changed. Um, so it was a little bit of a maverick approach. And also, um, I, my degree incorporated, yeah, but behavioural and social psychology, but also trained me to become a probation officer. So actually, as part of my degree, I spent several months training as a probation officer in West Yorkshire. And also, as part of my degree, I did a six-week placement uh, working in a hospice with terminally ill people. So from banking to a degree, probation, uh, working in a hospice, yeah, I think it's fair to say it was somewhat different. And then how did you find that transition coming out the other end of university? Did you find jobs straight away or was it a matter of grafting for them? Um, Well, I grafted in the sense of applying because um, I don't know what the term is now, but we had what we called the milk round where you'd get companies would visit the university and hold interviews. But their um, application forms weren't brief. So I had to graft a lot in actually filling in lots of application forms. And um, I was actually offered a position with the Unilever Company Management Development Scheme. Uh, They took on four people that year in HR um, and I was one of those four. So, and I think my big lesson again from that was um, I really prepared well for the interview and then for the assessment centre that took place in London. Um, and I was there for a year before life changed rather dramatically for me when um, having worked with one of their companies, Bird's Eye Walls, which is where often people go, when did you manage those 30 women on the economy beef burger line? It was when I was at Bird's Eye Walls. And I don't think I had anything to do with the beef burgers or the women, but I uh, I became ill with the illness ME, and uh, that's when things really changed for me. So are you someone who enjoys the world of work then, or were you more, did you enjoy the, the studying side of things? I'm probably um, 
although I, I write books and people might go, oh, you're, you're a bit of an academic. I think people who really know me go, no, I enjoy reading, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much driven by pragmatism. And, and for me, getting out there and working was, was the real key thing. Study, yeah, I did it and I actually quite enjoy it. But um, at the end of the day, I, I also think that my reading, I, I do, I do, I suppose I read for pleasure, but I read so much about what is related to my field. Um, and I'm constantly thinking about, well, how does this relate to life? So, yes, I do enjoy the study, but it's usually study with a purpose. And, I, and I'm not one of these people um, who's constantly looking for it to just get another qualification for the sake of it. You know, I've got a degree. I did a, count, a counselling diploma. But really, after that, my study has been very much self-taught and there hasn't been a qualification at the end of it. So before you went into the speaking and the um, sumo guy um, yeah. life, um, what do you think was like your favourite role in employment? When I um, when I actually um, graduated and got this position on um, on the Unilever Company Management Development Scheme, I did have almost like a year out where I and I worked running a job club. Uh, helping people who made redundant. So at that point, I think working with people who um, needed a boost in confidence as well. They needed a, they needed help with their mindset, but also their skill set. And I enjoyed getting alongside people and supporting them. So I worked actually in Bradford. Uh, interestingly enough, I worked on on the um, the edge of the red light district in Bradford. So it was an interesting uh, experience, particularly when I go for the um, afternoon early edition of the local newspaper and would get various approaches on my journey. That was like at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so th that wasn't right, it was my favourite job at the time, <laughs> let me just add. But um, it was good to like, use maybe some of my skills and my background as psychology to help people um, to hopefully find employment. But I think it's, it's fair to say after university and after my illness, that's when I really came into my own. And throughout that time, obviously, you then became a freelance trainer and speaker. But was there a point during that where you're thinking, I'm going to become freelance? Or is it was that like your goal, to be your own boss? So I work with Unilever, Birdseye Walls, the company they placed me with. And I think at that point, you're thinking, OK, I'm going to have a long-term career. Becoming ill with ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, yuppie flu or chronic fatigue syndrome, whatever you want to call it, was a life changer for me. It's probably then that I got into personal development and into reading. And in those days, you listen to audio cassettes, you know, no, no Internet, no email. It was a very, very different world. But um, I think... I think I got a desire to do with to do with personal development at that point. But what was really interesting was when I felt well enough to work, um, I would still get my relapses. And to say I wasn't one hundred percent physically three years down the line was an understatement. So I couldn't get a job doing anything, and I mean literally anything. Getting a part time job working in a supermarket stacking shelves was beyond my capability and capacity. And I wasn't in a position to pass a medical or honestly say to people, oh, yeah, no, I'm fully recovered now. I wasn't. So the freelance option was not really something that had been on my radar. But all of a sudden it's like, if I hire myself, I'll pass my own medical. You know, I'll be brilliant at the interview. And so my, my freelance journey, as it was then, um, was done more out of necessity rather than a dream or a goal. And I suppose that must have driven you more to make it a success because at the end of the day there's 
So I'm a freelancer, but I've always got that back with, if this doesn't work, I can always look for a, a full-time regular job. Whereas with you, you have to make it work, I suppose. I did, certainly in those <laughs> early days, especially because I knew, um, I knew I wasn't fully recovered. And I was very, very conscious that um, if I have another relapse, um, I'm not going to be any, any use to an employer. If I have a relapse while I'm working for myself, I can manage that. I can, um, you know, sleep during the day, which I often had to. In fact, my office, I always say I set up my own business, my international headquarters, double as a bedroom. I had a desk, a telephone and a double bed in, in the room, which I always say was a bit of a challenge, particularly for Bob and Linda in the double bed. But that's another story. Um, so, yeah, I, I, but I was driven also by I felt like I'd almost lost three years of my life with being ill. And I was driven also by, yeah, there was a, an, an, eco, an economic driver, which is I want to get some of my dignity back, but I also want to bring in some income as well. So there was a lot of things driving me at the time, definitely, to try and make it a success. And in I believe it's in 1994, a few years after you'd set up as a freelance, that's when you probably got your first turning point and such within the um, freelancing world, when you got approached by, was it the American agents who run the... Seminars. Yes, so there was an organisation at the time called Career Track who were based in Boulder, Colorado, and they started to do seminars in the UK. And they realised we keep on sending American speakers over. That's quite costly, so they started to look for British-based speakers. And I remember the application form, and um, and it's it. I suddenly thought this is dream. This is wonderful. They were still working freelance. You were on a self-employed basis. But the kind of seminars they ran on leadership and customer service and their kind of ethos and their ethics. And they had to say, and they said things like, you know, you probably see yourself as a bit of a performer because these are one day seminars. And I'm going, it's fair to say, suddenly my desire, my interest in, in drama, I'm thinking, this is great. But then the, the last bit of the application form said, please apply by sending in a one hour video of yourself speaking ideally in front of 50 to 100 people and then I always remember it said in brackets if you don't possess such a video you're probably not ready to join us yet. In 1994 there was no YouTube and we didn't have the ease of of technology that we have now and accessibility to it so I remember thinking I run workshops for redundant coal miners maximum group size is normally around a dozen so I remember putting this application form in the bin and going, the dream's over. And then um, I remember I I looked up and on my wall I had a quote and and the quote was Carpe Diem Seize the Day. And I remember looking at that quote and then looking at the bin. And eventually I picked out the application form once again at the bin. And I remember thinking, look, on paper I need a one-hour video of myself speaking in front of 1,500 people. I don't have that. But when I reread it, there was one word leaped off the page and it said, please send in a one-hour video of yourself speaking ideally in front of 50 to 100 people. And I can still vividly remember to this day saying to myself, Paul, you don't live in an ideal world. And I hired a room. Um, I rang up all my mates. I said, look, guys, I'm going to invite you to a one-hour one free motivational this training session and you're invited I said there's free food there's alcohol just laugh in the right places and I rang all my friends and they both said they'd come 
and um, boom, boom. And I and I ran a workshop for eight people. My wife videoed it. My mum was there and an uncle. And then I did a little piece to camera and said, when I sent off the video, this is a contrived situation. Um, but I genuinely believe that I can do what you are, the kind of person you are looking for. But I acknowledge it's not in front of 50 to 100 people. I sent that video. I didn't hear from them for six weeks. And then six weeks later, a lady called Jacqueline Guthrie, Guthrie rings me and says, I think we should talk. And uh, they became my biggest client. So as a result of that, I remember telling that story and someone said to me, he was going to go back to his office and write a little quote on, on a piece of paper and put it on the wall. And I went, Carpe Diem sees the day. And he went, no, no, no. He said, I'm going to write this. Don't leave your dreams in the bin. And, and I was so close to leaving the application form in the bin. But there was just something within me that knew that was an, an amazing opportunity. And although I didn't fit all the requirements and I was the youngest speaker that I'd ever used in Europe, um, and the only there was only one other person younger than me in the in North America. I just had that that self belief and that desire to sometimes you know what I mean, it's like if life serves you lemons make lemonade and and I and I just sometimes thought I've, I've got to go for this and boy am I glad I did. I suppose it's one of them scenarios where it exemplifies like how if you don't try you don't know kind of thing and at the end of the day if you hadn't have read that as ideally and you'd read that as have to which you clearly had the first time around yeah you wouldn't be potentially sat here today it, it was what was interesting yeah because it, it opened up opportunities for me to go beyond train running training workshops because they ran one day seminars so they might have anything from 50 to 200 people in the room and it was just you and one of the things that they said was really important was the sessions ran from nine till four obviously with lunch and a couple of breaks but one of the things that they said was the person who we hire will have as much energy at five to four in the afternoon as they do at five past nine in the morning. And it was being able to and it, it was a real learning experience for me. And how do you engage a whole room full of people for a whole day? And I think one of the things that people say about me now is they love my energy uh, when I speak. And um, yeah, it was it was an opportunity. But in life, life gives us opportunities it's up to us not just to seize them, but to make the most of them. And, and that sometimes comes down to hard work and there's no other magic, you know, magic uh, shortcut around that. Yep, seize the opportunities and sometimes you've got to make them, um, but then you've got to put the work in. And when you stood on the, st well, on the stage for the first time in front of a 50 to 100 people, how did it feel to know that you'd come from doing, I think you say in your book that you'd have done a, 30 second speech to a local church group mm. which have been cut down to even shot like five yeah, seconds yeah. how did it feel stood there thinking that's where you've come from and this is where you are now I think at the time when I did my first actual one day seminar for them and the lady who'd hired me um it was only what she called it's your debut seminar and and she sat at the, at the back of the room assessing me so I wasn't so bothered about look where I've come Paul I was more bothered about, do I do enough in this day to make her think, actually, we want to put more work your way? So at that point, um, I was very much focused on, I'm in the moment, I need to deliver well. Uh, and to be fair, it wasn't a perfect day and it wasn't like I knocked it out of the park. But this woman, and again, it's a lesson here is about, you know, success comes from the support of others. 
this woman came up to me at the end and she said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go through the whole day with you. And we spent two hours giving you feedback on what worked well and what didn't work well. She said, but can I just start by saying I saw enough in you today to believe you have the potential to be one of our best speakers and presenters. And it was still a journey, but she believed in me. And not only did she believe in me, but she gave me the tools and the feedback I needed in order to become a success. I suppose as well, from her point of view as well, to be able to see that in somebody and say that to them there and then after one one um, performance almost is quite incredible, really. She, I mean, she was involved in recruiting people. And so at that point, she'd seen a number, you know, what was happening to me was happening to everyone that they hired. And I think she'd seen enough people to kind of come to that area of expertise and insight. Um, and, but eternally grateful for her, you know, and the belief she showed in me at that point. But obviously it's not all roses when you're living the life of a, a self-employed person. And yeah. you've had a few setbacks on the way, but it's what you've done with them setbacks that when I was listening to your book really changed my mindset. And right. hopefully it will do going forwards. But there's a story about a client in 2003 where you seemingly had a deal on the table and yeah. then at the last minute they pulled out from that deal, but you turned it around. Yeah, what was interesting was um, I, um, I'll, I'll tell you the name of the client shortly, but um, so an organisation contacts me. I'd written a book at the time called 59 Minutes to a Karma Life, one of my earlier books, and he'd read it. And he contacts me out of the blue. And let's just put it this way. They are a major, major world, well, worldwide well-known Premier League football team. And um, they contacted me out of the blue and was saying, look, we've got some issues with stress, particularly around staff. You know, can I talk to you about maybe you're doing something with us? Because I've read your book and I got a great deal from it. I And I remember, you know, if it's, we said, when it's convenient, could you give me a call on this number? And I'm like... I want to play it cool. All right, they're the largest, one of the largest football teams in the world, but I'll play it cool. I know where I'm going. So I waited at least 12 seconds before I picked up the phone and rang them. And what was really interesting, within the first three or four minutes, we, we really established a connection and rapport. Uh, we agreed the date of the event and the content and the fee. And to get that all done so quickly was brilliant. And he just said to me, he said, Paul, I'm so looking forward to working with you. He said, I've just got to um, talk to HR dot a couple of I's, cross a couple of T's, but you're in. I remember putting the phone down and I was doing a little, little lap of honour of my office because at that point, you know, 2003, I'd, my, my business, I didn't have the sumo book. I wasn't known as a sumo guy. It was, I thought, going to be a real breakthrough opportunity for me. And to be able to just put their name on my website and to be able to go, here's one of my clients would be amazing. But... I didn't get this email to confirm things. And then a week later, I emailed and went um, and I said to the guy, I said, you know, really looking forward to working with you. I've designed the session, got the notes and handouts already as well. Um, but just need that email confirmation from you. And about 30 minutes later, he emailed me and he said, uh, due to circumstances, we're no longer able to proceed. But can I thank you for your interest in working with us as an organisation? And I'm like, that wasn't in the script. And I'd love to tell you, I responded very calmly and very rationally. But I think it's fair to say at that point, I was like, I wanted to fire off an email straight away. Um, but I didn't. And I waited 24 hours. Um, one of the lessons I've learned in life is sometimes when you've got the time, take the time. 
And yes, I've got an, an immediate reaction and an emotional one. And yeah, it's understandable. But just give yourselves time to calm down. I remember thinking to myself, it was um, a quote from Stephen Covey's book, Begin With The End In Mind. Uh, Covey wrote the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I remember thinking to myself, what, what outcome do I want with this? They're one of the largest organisations in terms of their, their genre, their sport in the world. Do I want to just close the door on this and be really... You know, I want to tell you what I really think. And I can't believe how unprofessional you've been. And even the courtesy to tell me I had to prompt you with an email. I remember thinking, I need to leave the door open. So I was very gracious. And, and one of the things I said in my email was, you know, I appreciate circumstances change. was disappointed, but I appreciate this happens. Just to let you know, as you're geographically pretty close to me, um, I'd actually be prepared to come in and just do maybe do a taster session for you. I don't just do stuff on st stress, but leadership, customer service. Um, maybe we could do something, as I say, over over a lunchtime at, at, at a reduced rate. And I just thought, I'm just pushing the door or trying to keep the door mm. open and being gracious in my response, although I didn't feel like being gracious. And I sent that email and an hour later, Manchester United booked me. And as a result of working with Manchester United, other doors were to open for me in the future, mm. uh, where I ended up working with Manchester City, and they became my largest client. And I was I was in with City yesterday, and that's um, this is now my ninth year of being involved with Manchester City. The Manchester United stuff opened the door, but actually I didn't do a great deal with them. But with City, I've done all kinds of things. I suppose it's one of them as well. You say you've done the work for them, you've prepared everything. They've pretty much confirmed verbally with you. And then to let you down, many people would say, yeah, you are going to go in all guns blazing and say, why are you doing this to me? But that moment to take aside and reflect and, yeah, you know, again, another example of just flipping the situation and you get a different outcome. And, and what's it really interesting, I suppose, both the stories about, you know, don't leave your dreams in the bin and with this one is, you know, my, my skill set, didn't change in the over those two experiences what what was all what the real key to my breakthrough and my success and I realized it's not always a happy outcome and a happy ending was probably my mindset and, and trying to think about the situation a bit differently and yes we all react at times but sometimes you're thinking about yeah but how do I best respond and I might react but everyone probably knows about this but you don't you know you maybe do the email but you don't send it yeah. You know, those kind of things. And you just allow yourself to feel the way you do, which is valid. But then think, when I can think to myself, what outcome do I want here? Begin with the end in mind. I find that incredibly helpful. So obviously you mentioned there that you had a um, book out before they contacted you. Yes. And then you went on in 2004, I think you wrote Sumer, and, but it was 2005 when it was published. That's right. How did you the book deals come about? Was that through the speaking and um, the workshops? Did somebody come to you or was it the opposite way around? My, so I'd written some books in the 90s on CV writing. So remember I ran that job club helping people who made redundant. I worked with British Coal Enterprise who helped people who made redundant from British Coal. So did quite a few on CVs. Did a book on perfect public speaking. 59 Minutes to a Calmer Life. And I'd love to tell you they'd all done incredibly well. They've done all right, but not amazing. When I started talking about SUMO, which is an acronym which can, which started out its life just simply standing for shut up, move on. Um, and it can now also, when we do in the education market, stand for stop, understand, move on. But I've got a number of ideas by then, but I suppose it was all about branding. And, and SUMO became this kind of umbrella phrase 
that I use to describe my sumo principles, my sumo ideas. People kept on going, you must write a book, you must write a book. I was put in touch with the largest publisher in the UK of that kind of book, my mate Steve. Um, I was convinced I'd get a deal with them. Um, and they basically said, no one is going to buy a book. There's to learn to shut up and move on. And again, I suppose, don't leave your dreams in the bin. I pushed a lot more doors. I contacted loads more publishers with this proposal and this idea. And I kept on getting rejection, rejection, rejection. To the point where when I tell the story, one woman saying to me, she said, you're not like a lot of other motivational speakers, are you? I said, oh, in what respect? And she said, some of them have been quite successful. And I'm like, thanks for the feedback. But I had 13 publishers said no. But as a friend of mine said, keep pushing doors because you only need one to open. Eventually one did. Um, I wrote it in 04. The book came out at end of May 2005. WH Smith's made it their business book of the month and I'm going it's not even a business book it's a personal development book and the publisher's going publisher said look if WH Smith's want to make it business book of the month it's a flipping business book okay and um, that again was a significant turning point I guess in my career and in my life really because because they made it business book of the month it gave it a profile that none of my other books had ever had and, and people started relating to some of the ideas and the personal stories and I think they like the kind of what I'd call the, the Mancunian approach to motivation. So rather than the Californian approach, you know, I'm a tiger, I'm a tiger. Um, I kind of go for tell it as it is, no bull, and let's be really practical. And I, and I shared my successes, but I shared my struggles. And I think people connected with that. And, and I think the book's now translated into 11 different languages. It went on to become a Sunday Times bestseller. And it, I don't know, probably 150,000 copies sold. Um, so the, the woman who said no one's going to buy a book time to shut up and move on one of the other lessons is you listen to the experts but don't always act on their advice this is the thing they're, they're experts within their industry but they might all be doing things the same way and sometimes it takes someone to do something a little bit differently and, and the, the publisher Capstone who are part of Wiley the, the editor who had the conversation with me he, he kind of said we're a bit quirky will be less mainstream, we're more likely prepared to take a risk because they were a smaller publisher than the, than all the ones that had rejected me. So in terms of Sumo, um, you could have quite easily become Paul McGee, the man behind Sumo. Yeah. But you didn't, you became the Sumo guy. Mm. How, was that a conscious decision or was that stuff other people started saying, oh, here's the Sumo guy? Or was that your decision, like, no, we're going to brand... As a sumo. Yeah, it was intentional. I When I knew the book was coming out, um, although I wanted to try and uh, get people to, um, or hire someone to do my PR, I also enrolled on a course with a, with a lady uh, called Do Your Own PR. And um, and there was like this daily um, advice on what you've got to do and, and, and articles for you to write and, and things about dealing with the media. And um, what part of that package was to have a meeting with her in London. And it was actually her advice. She said, um, I think you should call yourself the sumo guy. And um, I did. And, and and what's really interesting is people won't always remember I'm Paul McGee. But I literally have people. like it, Sometimes at service, I mean, it happens rarely. I don't want to give the impression it happens all the time. It doesn't. <coughs> but occasionally at a service station or at an airport, um, I'll... I'll get someone go, oh, I'm really sorry, I can't remember your name, but are you the sumo guy? And um, I'm going, yeah, you're a family member. Of course, you know, you know who I am. But um, 
so it does seem that one of the lessons I learned was about branding and about making your message sticky and memorable. And people won't always remember Paul McGee, as I say. But sumo, we've heard about the sumo guy. What's that about? We're all going to have to be in inflatable, um, you know, um, bodies and bouncing around. And and, and people suddenly go, oh, you're not wearing a thong today. Um, And you think, no, not today, no, but it's not a Saturday. Um, But I think the point being is the advice that this lady, Paula Gardner, gave me. um, I I took it. And sometimes you listen to the experts and you'd have to take their advice. On this occasion, I listened to the experts and I thought, well, I will take your advice. And I had that meeting with her probably early 2005. And 14 years later, I'm still known as a sumo guy. And I don't think that's going to change. And would you say off the back of that, that you've gained probably a, an edge on where you would have been if you had just been Paul McGee? Do you think the sumo guy has helped you achieve more? I think... Um, I, I operate in a world, in two different worlds in many respects. There are organisations who hire me who could never, ever hire a celebrity speaker. They haven't got the budget. Um, so, and, and to be successful in that area, I've had to have great content that, that, that can be delivered in a way that people get and like and enjoy and it, it makes a difference to them. But there's another sphere to my speaking where I am competing against celebrities. And again... I don't have the safety net of celebrity in terms of my speaking career. I can't, they can't go, well, he wasn't great, but we've got a photo of him with his gold medal at the end or that picture on top of Everest, having lost four fingers from frostbite. How inspiring was that? I have to work on my content and how I deliver it and deliver it in an inspiring, engaging way. What I think, and that's what gives me the real edge, the sumo guy is a little bit, it's. I would still say it's the it's the icing on the cake. It's not the main ingredient, but it can create a bit of curiosity. You know, well, who is the sumo guy? It, rather than just go and here's Paul McGee. All right, I'm not the celebrity, but having this kind of the sumo guy title and branding has given. I wouldn't say it's been the reason for my success, but I think it's maybe added to it. It's played a part in it. But at the end of the day, I can have great branding, a great website a very sticky, memorable name. But if you don't deliver and knock it out of the park every time I speak, I wouldn't be in business. Suppose if there's three speakers on the bill and they remember the sumo guy, then that obviously helps. But as you say, it's all down to content. You could be remembered as the sumo guy for being the worst of the three on the bill. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. So actually, that is so right. People might go, cool, the other speaker was terrible. What was his name again? I can't remember. Or what was her name again? But you're right. The the thing is, because it's sticky and memorable, if you drop the ball, um, you're going to be remembered full stop. So just to move on to a couple of the sumo principles, um, a few that stuck out to me, especially with like the careers and the personal branding kind of head on, um, was the first one you touched upon in the book, which is E plus R equals R. Um, And at first, that obviously is the experience plus your reaction equals the outcome. Yeah. And at first I thought, oh, that the way it was being spoken about is quite reflection style in the terms mm. of, oh, this happened, I reacted like that, and this was the outcome. And then obviously yeah. as you get more and more into it, I thought, this is actually a really good tool for decision-making going forward. Because if you can see an, out, uh, 
an experience happening. So if you know you're going into a job interview or you know you're, something's going to come up, you can adjust the way you approach that experience. Sure. And I thought that was actually really useful. And then further into it, you talk about fruity thinking yeah. and changing your mindset in terms of you then don't, when you have them experiences, you don't think about it. You just act in a different way. And mm-hmm. um, I suppose my question is, is like, how do you go about making them changes into it becoming a habit rather than a conscious? Sure. So E plus cycles O, which I mean, there can be flexibility in what those uh, letters stand for and how people use that idea. But I think to, to rewind, events would happen to me and I'd go, I got a rejection, so you know what the outcome's going to be. Or organisations say, we're going through a lot of change, so you know what the outcome's going to be. And I'm saying it's not simply the event or the experience that determines your outcome. It's how you respond or react. So I ended up working with Manchester United, even though the event I got was due to circumstances we're no longer able to proceed. If I'd given them a reaction, I would never have worked with Manchester United. But because of how ultimately I responded, I got a good outcome. So part of E plus R equals O is saying, look, don't think your outcomes and your successes or your failures are all just about the event. It's how you respond or react. So um, that's kind of almost by osmosis and by conditioning. Um, um, it's kind of in me, repetition, age, retention. You know, when you drive, when you've been driving for long as I have, you're not having to go manually through what have I got to do here. It becomes a way of life. But when you're driving for the very first time, it's very, very different. So one, as a kind of almost like a core principle, a foundation to all my sumo principles is E plus R equals O. Because I think some people go E equals O, event equals outcome. No, 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 no. You're in the equation. In terms of fruity thinking, so in the book, I talk about actually people, you know, I ask the question, besides God, if you believe in God, who's perhaps the most important person you're ever going to talk to? It's actually yourself. And we're having conversations with ourselves all the time. We're telling ourselves stories about our lives, about our past, about what our future could be like. We're not always consciously aware, but we all carry a story in our head about ourselves. And I think sometimes our conversations aren't helpful. I call that faulty thinking. It's not going to work. Consequences of faulty thinking uh, increases your stress and can increase your anxiety, but it can decrease your confidence and your motivation. We can do that to ourselves. We wake up in the morning going, I don't think I can do this. I'm not looking forward to that. It probably won't go well. Life can become sometimes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But fruity thinking, and if people go to the website, which I'm sure we'll mention later on, I came up with these seven questions to help you sumo, to become more fruity in your thinking and to respond more effectively to some events. So one of the first questions is, okay, on a scale of one to 10, where 10's death, where is it? Great way to put things in perspective. Or how important will this be in six months time? Another one of the questions is, okay, how can I influence or improve the situation? I'm so tempted at times to be a bit of a martyr and wear a victim t-shirt. But when I say to myself, okay, how can I influence or improve the situation? Maybe I'm starting to think about solutions rather than sending out invites to the pity party. And so these seven questions are very, very important in developing this fruity thinking so that whatever the event has been, hopefully I can respond better and get not a perfect outcome, I live in the real world, but maybe a better outcome than if I just simply reacted. I think that's the thing is, it's about changing that mindset and yeah. things like that. And then 
another one um, that really stood out to me was Learn Latin, which you've already mentioned, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. Um, and I think what stood out for me in that was when you were talking about being your international headquarters mm. and you had some emails and phone calls to make. Yes. And you didn't make them, you put them off. Yeah. And it's because of this fear of like avoiding rejection and not doing anything uncomfortable. And yeah. I think that really stood out, especially for like younger people who may be not aware of the world of work and things like that can be quite daunting to make them moves. Yes. Especially when you've been in a system that almost nurtures you all the way through in education. It's quite daunting to push yourself outside your comfort zone to get the outcomes that you want. Yeah, and in fact, um, interestingly enough, and again, it just shows about our age, when I set up my international headquarters, that was in 1994. We didn't even have emails. and You have to put off emails. I think people sometimes hide behind emails now. Um, so it was about picking up the phone. And I think what I've learned in life, again, is the great procrastination trap where, um, you know, I don't feel like doing it today. Um, well, you know, I've got, I'm quite busy, got a Netflix series to catch up on, or I need to make myself a coffee. And although the examples of how I avoided taking action may be different from the 1990s to 2019, um, the fact is we go back to our comfort zone. It feels comfortable. Oh, and by the way, if I never approach a publisher with a book idea, I'll never get rejected. And I know some people have gone, there's a book in me, you know, Paul, and they've never been rejected because they've never been sent a proposal. And one of the things I've learned is sometimes right feelings follow right actions. In other words, quit waiting to feel motivated and just acknowledge I'm not feeling particularly comfortable about this. This is out of my comfort zone. Um, I don't feel particularly ultra even positive, but you know what? I'm going to send that email. I'm going to make that phone call. I'm going to attend that meeting. I'm going to approach that person maybe at a, at a particular event that I'm at where they're on their phone, avoiding eye contact with anybody. So am I. And although I don't feel completely comfortable, maybe I'll step out of my comfort zone and go, oh, hi, um, what, what's what's brought you here tonight or today? And you start a conversation and I think there's so many um, conversations we can have in our heads for the reasons why we shouldn't take action. But at the end of the day, learn Latin, carpe diem, seize the day. And I love the word seize. It's not, well, you know, whatever will be, will be. Well, if it's meant to happen, it will. No, flipping don't buy into that. What do you mean if it's meant to happen, it will? Flipping heck. Do you know what I mean? The pilot on the plane doesn't go, we are hopefully heading to Lanzarote, but if it happens, if it was meant to be, it will. We have a plan, we have an action, we flipping well take it. And I think some people just give themselves too much of an easy time to make excuses for why they didn't take action. Life does not reward you having good ideas. You didn't set up this podcast because you had a good idea or a good intention. You set it up and we're doing what we're doing now because you took the action. And that's what people need to appreciate. I've definitely been there in the exact experience you talk about in your book where it's like, oh, it's, I'll make some phone calls. Uh, no, it's about lunchtime. No one will be around at lunchtime. Yeah. And then it's, uh, well, it's two o'clock on a Friday. Who's around at two o'clock Friday kind of thing? Yeah. And then you go, I'll do it on Monday. And then you go, Monday, oh, they've just got back into the office. And before yeah. you know it, it's Friday again. You're in the yeah. same situation. You just never oh, we are, we are brilliant at talking ourselves out of taking action. 
Um, and we just need to make, uh, make them say, I'm not feeling particularly comfortable about this and that's okay. I found that one of the keys to success in life is not motivation, it's self-discipline. You just touched upon it um, a little bit there that, about the ditch Doris day. Yeah. And um, the whatever will be, will be attitude. Hope is not a strategy, I think, as you say in the book. Yeah. And um, I think that's another one is that they link very well together, them two of this totally. action and um, great ideas. is fantastic, but if you don't do anything with them, you need to put action to them. Yeah, I wanted to... That, that's the final chapter in the book, um, Ditch Doris Day. And people might go, Ditch Doris Day, but she was she sang this song, K Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be, the future's not ours to see, in a film from the 1950s. And I think you, you plan your holiday, um, but you don't... Anyway, things to think about planning your life. And of course, I want to build in spontaneity. And of course, we need to sometimes improvise in certain situations. And of course, there are times when you don't know what's around the corner. But that doesn't have to be completely how the whole story is. Sometimes, well, you do know what's around the corner because you've put it there. So you know what's around the corner because you're expecting. Or I know, I know, as I'm talking to one organisation yesterday, I know this office is going to close and we have to relocate. I know it's not for a year. But I need to start, not know whatever will be, will be, and we'll just see how things are at the time. What could, what actions can you take now so when it happens in 12 months, you're in a better place to deal with it? So it's very much about having a bit of a vision for your future as well and, and planning things rather than um, completely reacting. And I understand why people say, well, go with the flow, but sometimes the flow isn't taking you to a part of the river you don't want to be going. Yeah, I totally appreciate what you're saying there. And I think... I think you say in the book as well about um, these aren't set rules. Some people come up to you and go, what should I do in this situation? What do in this situation? But it's like you say, like, um, learn that in Caesar Day. Well, you could misinterpret that. And when you got that rejection email from Manchester United, some people would seize the day and send the email straight away. Yeah. And it's... I think that's and that's a really good point. I think um, these are a set of tools and principles. And you don't cut the hedge with the lawnmower which is a big breakthrough for some of your listeners, I appreciate. Um, so it's a good tool, but I need to think about how I use it and in what situation. And you're dead right. There are times when you just say, if I seize the day and take immediate action now, what outcome am I going to get? And also, case or whatever will be, will be. Could there be times in life when you go, I've not got any control over this. There's not a lot I can do. Case or Sarah. Yeah. Sometimes. So one of the things I think with all my books and with all my talks is I'm not going to give you a one size fits all approach to life. Here's some tools. Here's some ideas. Think about the context. Think about, you know, the situation and the outcome you want and realise that what worked well, well in one situation might not work well in another. Realise that what well, worked well with one person might be not going to be successful with another one. And I want to give you that sense of flexibility and fluidity in terms of my ideas rather than here's your prescription take the pills three times a day and life will be a success life isn't like that well i think that's a great insight into the sumo book um but i just wanted to um we'll talk about how, where people can find the book and all the other stuff on the sure. website later but um you also do some work with schools yes what you so maybe explain a little bit about how that works because obviously as you say You've adapted the acronym a little bit for schools. Yeah. Does some of the teachings, do you have to 
turn them back a bit or do they all apply? They they all apply. What I think was, without going into huge detail, um, it's fair to say my childhood experiences were a challenging one for all kinds of reasons. And I remember as I got older, for me, sometimes it wasn't about what are you learning. It was also what do you need to unlearn? And some of the kind of beliefs and attitudes and just negative experiences of childhood. Man, I've got to work through some of this. And when I got to like my, my 30s and 40s, I remember thinking, I wish I'd known as a kid what I know now. And so when I was writing Sumo, I actually put at the end of the book, I'd like to try and take this into schools if you think you can help me make contact. And things have evolved and they've not always gone according to plan and it's been a bit of a roller coaster. But although we refer to the acronym now as STOP, Understand, Move On, and most people in education, we do a lot in primary, um, <clears throat> prefer that rather than shut up, move on. We still talk about E plus cycles, though. We still talk about fruity thinking. We still still talk about hippo time is okay. What are hippos doing? Mud, they wallow. Sometimes we need a bit of a wallow. It's okay, but it's temporary. Um, all the ideas still are the same. And we might use more different ways of communicating it. So there's more activities and we use art and we use drama and even sport as a, as a way of engaging children to engage with the material. Um, but the actual ideas themselves don't change. You may just change the way you present some of them. I suppose that Doris Day doesn't mean much to too many. <laughs> Believe it or not, it doesn't. Although I know one teacher, they seem to make that also into a bit of a history project. <laughs> and in fact, the only thing that actually, that, that what does actually change, apart from the acronym, is Ditch Doris Day becomes Dare to Dream when we're working with children. That's nice. Um, and in terms of the future, um, if there's any aspiring keynote speakers or... Um, performers, coaches out there, potentialists. What, where do you see your industry going? Do you think there's any big changes on the horizon, or is it going to be quite standard? I don't know if technology is going to come in in any way. Well, I think your ability to access information, like through a podcast, audio books, going online, means clearly that um, the material you have. It's like um, a friend of mine once talked about. Um, you can get these. You can get Kit Kats. And you can get a four stick, you can get a two stick, you can even get um, little Kit Kat chunky chocolate. And, and some of them sometimes even change the flavour a bit. So the essence of the Kit Kat doesn't change, but the way it's presented does. And, um, and I think with my material and in this industry, if you just say, I want to be a motivational keynote speaker... Yeah, well, um, good luck on that. If you climb Everest and win a gold medal and then ski down naked uh, and have an affair with some celebrity, I think you could make life as a, as a, as a keynote speaker. I don't like the skiing bit, so that's me out of, out of the window for that one. So I think it's a question of going, well, maybe you do want to be a motivational keynote speaker. Good for you. Dare to dream. But also have a number of other tools in, you know, or arrows in your quiver. Not, a new, not an analogy is often used, um, to think, okay, maybe I need to do a bit of coaching, maybe I do a bit of writing, maybe I'll do my own podcast, and realise there's different channels now to express and to communicate your, your key messages and your concepts and your ideas. So I think technology will always evolve, and, and therefore your material is more accessible and you can reach a wider audience. And yet, there's something about human connection and, and I don't think in 10 years' time they'll go, no, no, we don't do staff conferences now. Everyone is at home in their office 
and we just watch it on a video on a, on, on your computer screen screen there is something about bringing people together and i think there's also something about seeing um someone on stage perhaps um who can communicate something to you and then maybe is available later on to have a conversation with you and you actually get to engage with them almost like in the real world rather than in the virtual world I suppose it'd be really interesting to see what's on that application form that you threw in the bin. What's their their version of it now? If Indeed. it is still a video, if it is, can you send us a link to your YouTube channel? Or Absolutely, like and that? that would be it. That would definitely be it now. And then, in terms of yourself, um, at the beginning of the book, it says, um, "Well, you say that you're a football manager and you've had the opening three matches." Yeah. Where do you think you are now within that season? Within the season, um, that's interesting. I still think, um, I still have a desire, you know, I'm in my mid-50s now and some people, I know people my age who are not just talking about retirement, but have retired or plan to in the next couple of years. I think with me, there's still more to come. I think as things have happened in society, when I wrote Sumo in 05, um, Facebook was just getting off the ground. I don't think YouTube had been launched. Twitter certainly hadn't. Um... Instagram definitely hadn't been launched. Lots of things have changed in society since the first the book first came out. Also, mental health, well-being, resilience. They were not words on people's radar. Um, stress was, but that was it. And I think what I've realised is wherever I'm at in the season, there's still plenty of the season to play. And hopefully I've got a part to play in that. And, and I don't think that's me sitting on the sidelines watching I think sometimes I'm very much participating in the game. It might be that I support other people who want to be in the game as well. But I think just generally in life, there is a, there's a need and, and sometimes there's a hunger, but there's, maybe there's not always the hunger, but there is a need now to go, look, we need to know how to live life well. You know, school and university might prepare us to pass exams. Has it really prepared us for life? Um, we, you know, when I was growing up, if I was bullied at school, which I was occasionally, but when I got home, that was it. Now with, with social media, it's like it can continue and it can continue. And so I feel there is still a need for the kind of things I talk about. And yes, could I afford to retire in two or three years and, and downsize my lifestyle and then just take it easy? Actually, I probably could. Would I be fulfilled? No. And so I feel a drive within me, a burning desire to go, look, I've had a screwed up life at times. I've made masses of mistakes, learned a few things along the way, gained some successes along the way as well. Here's some stuff I've learned. Take it or leave it. But I know from the feedback I've had from people, those who've taken it and applied it and used it, they found it helpful. I never like to say, and I don't agree with people who say, your book changed my life or I heard you speak and you changed my life. No, you change your life. I might have been instrumental in helping you, but ultimately, if anyone changes their life, it's down to them. Other people might support you, but it's down to you. I think that's a fantastic outlook on it from your point of view. You could quite easily take that um, accolade of changing people's lives, but it's quite interesting to hear you talk about it that way. Um, so I've got four final questions. Um, fire away. Quick fire, yeah. So who or what has been your biggest inspiration throughout your career? I think two things. Um, or two, um, one would be my mate Paul Sandham, who um, I dedicate the sumo book to. And he's just miles ahead of me in terms of his thinking and his knowledge and his intellect. 
And so he's he's mentored me as well as being a mate. And I will always be always grateful for the input he's had in my life. And also in uh, 2000, an organisation was set up called the Professional Speaking Association. And again, an organisation not set up for celebrity speakers, but for people who are trying to get into the speaking world. And although I hardly ever get to any of their meetings now, um, in those early days, what I learned and the networking and the friendships that have developed was a huge, huge help to me in my career. So in some ways, they inspire me because the word inspire means breathe life into. And I suppose their knowledge, their insight, their support and, and being part of that tribe, that group of people trying to do something and build a business, often from, in my case, ground zero, um, you know, move from invalidity benefit to trying to do what I'm doing. They were a big inspiration for me as well. That's brilliant to have them people around like-minded people, I suppose, when you're going through something like that. Sure. Um, next question, what is the biggest learning um, from your career? I think there's a couple of things that do come to mind. Again, one, I think a phrase you used before, success comes from the support of others. So it's great to be driven. It's great to be focused, which I believe I am. But, you know, my wife has, has been involved in, in the support in the business, in, in managing it. Um, I have some staff who now help take away a lot of the, the stuff I don't particularly I'm good at and all the admin and all the logistics and all the planning. But also, I think my, my fellow speaker mates who I can watch and learn from, I, I just be a sponge. Don't be a rock. Don't let things just wash over you in terms of learning. Be a sponge. Learn from anybody. And I think coupled with that, have focus, um, you know, perhaps you realise, all right, don't leave your dream in the bin. All right, get the dream out and, and kick it around and see what I can do. But let's remember that some dreams are not dreams, they're flipping delusions, and sometimes they need to be left in the bin. And I think you can understand that when you realise that people try, I'm going to be a speaker, and then six months later, I'm going to get into doing property, and then six months later, I'm going to start designing websites. It's like, well, what do you really want to do? I think for me, I knew I had a skill. I knew I was a pretty good communicator. I was comfortable standing up in front of people. I could make them laugh, make them think. I had to work at it and still craft it, but I knew I had that. And then that became my fundamental focus. Not about let's do webinars and let's do apps and one thing or another. That might come, but above all, I knew what I was good at doing and I was very, very focused and I avoided distractions. So the next question was, what's one tip for success and building your personal brand do you think it's that focus it is but it's also about being memorable because as i said to you before you know when climbing everest and having a gold medal and skiing down the, the mountain naked that's one way to be memorable but for me it was also look it's the world of personal development am i saying anything that's not really been said before i don't know don't think i am in some ways but i'm saying it in a unique way you know unless you're using my material with or without my permission you're not going to hear people talk about hippo time. You know, there's no other people going, I'm, I'm the sumo guy. Um, fruity thinking. Fruity thinking, you could just go, well, it's positive thinking, isn't it? Uh, well, it is, but I called it fruity thinking. And people, and it's about making what you do sticky and memorable. Sometimes saying the familiar in a less familiar way. So you get people's curiosity and pique their interest. Um, that is also, in terms of branding, being hugely important for me. Brilliant. And then finally, what is the best moment in your career to date? 
I know in my life it would be the birth of my children. But um, so in 1989, I lost my job through ill health. I went on invalidity benefit. That was in April 1989. That same month in April 1989, a book that later became voted the most influential business book of the 20th century was, was, all, was published in April 18, 1989 by a guy who had mentioned before, Dr. Stephen Covey wrote the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's sold in its millions. Probably heard of less now. That happened in 1989. His book comes out, I sign, I'm on invalidity benefit. Um, fast forward um, 20 years, and I'm speaking at the same conference as him at the Sydney Convention Center. Um, he's the opening speaker. I then follow him. The Aussie audience loved my stuff, laughed a lot. And my brother, who lives in Australia, was in the audience. And I was going to be speaking later on that day as well. But when we, straight after I'd spoken, it was a break. And I, I stepped outside and I sat in the sunshine, having a coffee with my brother. Having met Stephen Covey, who's now sadly passed away, before my talk, and we chatted. And I remember thinking, wow. When his book came out, I was queuing up with my walking stick in a post office to get me 35 quid. He was writing a book that became the most influential business book of the 20th century. 20 years later, I'm sharing a stage with him. That was pretty special. I suppose you couldn't ever foresee that when you were there. Absolutely no way. And to be fair, I didn't know in 89... April, oh, well, there's a book come out. Uh, it was only later on when I was reading it and, and, and it was like, and I realised it came out in 1989 and then it came out in April 1989. I'm going, man, alive, I lost my job through real health in April 89. So, yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, I realised, wow, that's um, quite a connection. And it also, what I think people need to appreciate about themselves is there's more to us than meets the eye and we've got potential. We don't always realise we've got it. We need to have a goal, an, an attitude with an open mind. We need strategy. We need support. We need all those things. But we have more potential than we ever realise. That's fantastic. So we said we touched upon it. Where can people find more about your stuff? Sure. Well, um, just go to the website, thesumoguy.com. And um, you can see a link to my YouTube channel as well. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at the sumo guy. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, um, I'd have to say my, my my daughter, who's 23, has thousands more followers on Instagram than me. But I'll get over it. I'll shut up and move on. But on Instagram, it's paulmcgee2515. Don't read into the numbers. It's just what I came up with. So website, Twitter, um, Instagram, and you can probably find me on Facebook as well. Yeah, as well, if you didn't catch any of that, if you just search the sumo guy, you come up straight away on Google yeah, as well. Sounds indeed. brilliant. So thank you for your time. Pleasure. It's been great talking to you, Matt. Thank you. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and got something out of it. If this is your first time listening, then there's five other episodes that we've got at the back catalogue that you can go and listen to. I think that would be a great place to start. And for those of you who've heard all the episodes so far, it's just a couple of weeks wait until we release the next one. As Paul mentioned in the interview, make sure to check him out if you're interested in some of his stuff. Just search for the Sumo Guy on Google and he comes up. 
Personally, I follow him on Twitter and I think he's great on there. If you've enjoyed some of the stuff he's talked about today, then he's definitely worth a follow. And as he mentioned, there's loads of more information on his website. As we're back with a new batch of episodes, I'd love to hear from you about what you've liked so far, what you haven't liked. So if you can do that, you can contact me via at the MJ Social. That's on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And I'm also currently looking to plan the next batch of episodes. So if there's anyone you want to hear from, let me know. We'll try and get it sorted. But as ever, I'd just like to thank you for listening once again. And if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely brilliant. And if you can follow or subscribe on whichever platform you're listening on today, that would mean the world. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.